In May of 2020, the podcast took its first trip back to Lewis Sacker's Wayside School, a truly wild place that somehow manages to make elementary school seem like both a fantasy and a nightmare. If you've listened to the episode about sideways stories from Wayside School, you already know that my feelings about the book may have been a little controversial. In summary, I was not a big fan. Wayside School and I meet again on this episode though, and you will have to stick around to see if my feelings have changed. Wayside School is Falling Down was published in 1989 and brings more of Sacker's zany episodic storytelling to the page. Today, my guests and I dig into a few of the school stories that we found especially interesting and entertaining. We get into the series' unique publishing history, its lack of diversity, Sacker's talent for connecting to audiences, identity development, book talk, the appeal of Wayside School for teachers and librarians, bathroom humor, existential dread, the importance of names, school discipline, and, if you can believe it, so much more. For episode 207, we welcome Denise Williams to SSR. Denise wrote her first book in the second grade. I Hate You and its sequel, I Still Hate You, featured a tough, funny heroine, a quirky hero, witty banter, and a dragon. Minus the dragons, these are still the books she likes to write. After penning those early works, she finished second grade and eventually earned a PhD. After growing up a military brat around the world and across the country, Denise now lives in Iowa with her husband, son, and two ornery shih tzus who think they own the house. How to Fail Out Flirting was her debut novel, and she can usually be found reading, writing, or thinking about love stories. Denise's newest love story, Do You Take This Man?, hits shelves on September 6th, 2022. Follow her on Instagram and Twitter at NickWillWrites. Thanks so much to Denise for taking the time to talk with me for this episode. Big thanks also go out to everyone who has supported the podcast with a five-star rating or review, by sharing about the show on Instagram or with a friend in real life, or as an SSR patron. Members of our Patreon community contribute a few dollars each month to the show in exchange for rewards like access to the SSR Discord channel, membership in the SWR book club, monthly newsletters, reading recap videos, bonus episodes, and more. I love getting to know this cozy community, and I am so grateful for its members for helping the pod grow. If you would like to learn more about joining the Patreon family, visit www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or go to www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page. If you would like to learn more about the podcast more generally, make sure you're following on social media. We are at ssrpod on Instagram and Twitter and on Facebook when you search the SSR podcast or the SSR book club. Instagram, especially, is a great place to spread some love for your favorite content at absolutely no cost. If you enjoy what you hear today, please snap a screenshot and post it to your Instagram story. Remember to tag me so I can see it and share. Episode 207 is brought to you by Kensington's newest title, Twice a Quinceañera by Yamil Saeed Mendez. This own voices multicultural rom-com is the first novel featuring an adult character subverting the quinceanera trope by throwing a bash for herself after the typical age of 15. Author Yamil Mendez is already a big name in the kid-lit and YA communities as the recipient of the 2021 Pura Belpre Young Adult Author Medal 
and an inaugural recipient of the Walter Dean Myers Grant Supporting Diverse Authors. Plus, her 2020 YA novel, Furia, was a Reese pick. Twice a Quintanera puts the spotlight on an accomplished adult woman who chooses to turn a hard breakup into a celebration of herself, and I have a feeling you are going to love it. You can find it wherever books are sold. Find out more at kensingtonbooks.com. Find your next great audiobook at Libro.fm. That's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M. And use code SSRPODCAST when prompted to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Libro.fm is a fantastic place to buy audiobooks because it supports indie booksellers instead of giant corporations. The audiobooks you buy there will sound and cost the same as the ones you buy from the big guys. Happy listening! Speaking of listening, it's time to chat about Wayside School. Let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hoff-Kosick, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Denise. Welcome to SSR. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to talk with you today about Wayside School is Falling Down. Now, Denise, I do have a confession to make, and this is this is complicated for me, so I hope you'll bear with me as I share this on this Friday morning that we're spending together. <laughs> okay, so we covered the first book in this series, which is called Sideways Stories from Wayside School, which is like a hard title to say so I have to be careful when I say it it doesn't exactly like roll off my tongue we covered this book back in 2020 I remember it very clearly because I released it I think in like mid to late April because I I recorded it like right after lockdown started oh and I remember that like in the scope of our conversation my guests and I were like most people we were like okay like hope everybody's staying safe for the next two weeks like see you on the (laughs) other side and then the episode didn't release until I think late May and I had to for obvious reasons included my intro like a note about how yes like aware that this has been going on much longer than planned so I remember that about this episode about sideways stories from Wayside School but I also remember that I hated the book <laughs> and I, look there are a lot of books that I've read for the podcast that I've had mixed feelings about we are now in the 200 plus episode territory I don't love every book that I've read for the podcast, but I have to say that for whatever reason, I had such a visceral reaction to Sideways Stories from Wayside School, so much so that I felt like apologetic to listeners because so many people were excited about it. (laughs) And so I did not listen to that episode again because I wanted to come into our conversation today with fresh eyes and an open heart, of course. But I just wanted to let you know that that's the context that like, That episode back in 2020, I remember when I released it, I was like, oh, wow, this is like my first really controversial episode. (laughs) Well, I will tell you, Allie Parker hosts a podcast called um, Rom Ever After, where we come on and talk about our favorite rom-coms. Yeah. And I chose You've Got Mail, which is my absolute favorite forever. 
And that episode was her bashing it for an hour and a half and me trying to defend my admittedly problematic fave. And we are good friends now. That was probably our first real conversation. And so uh, we still joke about that. So um, I've got tough stuff. <laughs> so yeah, we're, we're ready for it. So I do want to listen to that episode. And I know we have a lot of fans of You've Got Mail in our community. Can you give us some like top line notes like now I'm really curious about why why you've got mail is so problematic I haven't watched it in a long time oh well I always will love that idea of meeting somebody in a virtual space and then admittedly there's a little bit of catfishing with Tom Hanks they are both sort of emotionally cheating on their spouses yes it is a very uh white context but you know love featuring the indie bookstore i love the banter it feels very 90s and it takes me back to like high school okay uh, but yeah those are admittedly a few problematic things about it yes well okay listeners i'm going to link to that episode in the show notes if you want to listen to more about you've got mail but let's get into wayside school so denise yes. i would love to hear more about your history with this series and why you wanted to talk about this book for our recording today sure so Really, Sideways Stories from Wayside School, I remembered reading so clearly when I was in like third grade. And I think our teacher maybe assigned it or like read it to us in class or something. But I just remember the stories. And this is just audio, but I'm actually holding up my original copy from when I was in third grade. So cool. I still have um, both books. And so when I was looking kind of at the list you were talking about, there are a few kids books that really stick out to me, like Matilda by Roald Dahl and, and a few others I think folks have already talked about. And so I was thinking through like, you know, I just I remember this book kind of being fun when I was a kid and I haven't looked at it since I was probably in the fourth grade. And so I was like, you know, this would be fun to talk about. So actually, just in the last couple of days, I reread it for the first time and Oh, we'll get into that. But it was kind of fun to, to go back to that one. I could tell too, and I was just looking at the publication date. So the first one was from the 70s. Yeah. And then this one was from the almost, I think the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, there were 11 years between the two books, which I found really interesting. The first one was published, I believe, in 1978. And then Wayside School is Falling Down is published in 1989, which I was surprised about, like that there was such a big gap. And I actually, as I was reading it, and I still loved a lot of things about this book, thinking about how that could even be adapted in a more modern context, and maybe it has been, I actually don't know, but the way that this would look different now, like a couple times I was like, oh no, that's that's child abuse, um, but kind of in that fun kids context, but thinking about how that would look now and how it might be different for a current like, cohort of kids. Yeah, so there actually was a new installment in the Wayside School universe that published in 2020, and I haven't read that one, but I came across that news when I was preparing for that episode that I was referring to, that all controversial episode from a few years ago. So I can tell you a little bit about what that looked like. Like I said, it was published in 2020, and it was called Wayside School Beneath the Cloud of Doom. It was the first addition to the series since Wayside School Gets a Little Stranger, which was published in 1995. And the author, Louis Sacker, said, I had no intention of creating a series. I preferred challenging myself with different types of novels, everything from There's a Boy in the Girl's Bathroom to Holes to The Card Turner, and most recently Fuzzy Mud, all quite differently. All along, I knew I would only go back to Wayside when I felt like I could come up with something fresh and innovative. I finally felt inspired to try again. Not only have young readers been asking for more Wayside School stories over the years, but more and more I'm meeting adults who read them as kids 
and are now introducing them to kids of their own. He goes on to say in this interview, readers will discover new things about the same familiar characters and hallways, if you can call it a hallway when there is only one classroom on each floor. <laughs> in terms of reading tastes and kids' expectations, it has been my experience that readers don't change all that much. The kids I meet today are similar to those I met 40 years ago. And then he specifies that one of the things that he planned to focus on when he was writing this new installment, again, I haven't read it, I'd be curious, uh, listeners, if any of you have, please let us know. There was a big focus on updating the technology, which I think is gonna be really crucial for any piece of literature that's geared toward kids in the 21st century. So I guess this new universe of Wayside School includes the technology that we've become more used to in 2022. And I would guess maybe a bit more diverse classroom, but uh, maybe not. I'm not sure. We can only hope. Um, yeah, so let's talk a little bit about your first impressions of Wayside School is Falling Down. When you were first getting into it, Denise, was it anything like what you remembered from when you were a kid? Or were you like, what is going on? I feel like I've never read this book before because I've had people on the show who've experienced both about different books. Now, actually, I did have weird flashbacks to remembering parts of this book. And again, I, I turned 40 a couple days ago. So happy birthday. When I say thank you, when I say it's been a long time since the fourth grade, it's been a very long time. So that was kind of a fun, you know, my first impression, honestly, was this is funny. And again, I, I have a young son. I read a lot of kids books and usually... They, I know that they are funny for him, but I'm not finding the humor in it personally. Um, as I was reading some of these little short stories, like I loved the humor in it and like the the craft in the writing and the way they were put together. So I definitely did remember some of it as I was reading. And it actually sparked some memories from the first book, just kind of like blips of remembering the visual of the woman in the cafeteria serving up the mushroom surprise. And like, like just some of those names came back and the groundskeeper hauling the computer up the stairs. And the weirdest thing that I remembered is there's a coffee can full of Tootsie Roll Pops. Yes. And I have not thought about Tootsie Roll Pops nor like a coffee can on a desk in forever. But as soon as I read that, it, it was such a clear memory. I remember as a kid being fascinated by the idea of what that would look like. I don't know why that sparked my imagination. So that was really fun. And again, like knowing more about writing now, obviously than I did in fourth grade, like I see a lot of just craft and talent in the way the words are put together and the stories are put together to kind of just grab humor, but also to speak to kids, you know, like this age, like where they would find humor in things. And again, kids now probably would find humor differently than we did like in the 90s. But the way that the, the writing is done, I was just really impressed. So as I was writing, that was actually my first impression. And I think it took me like an hour and a half to read the whole thing. It was a pretty quick read, obviously. Um, but I was engrossed in it. And again, with kids books, that's not always the case. With adult books, that's not always the case either. That's true. That's true. Yeah, I mean, to offer a little bit of context about the author for those who don't know, so as I mentioned a few minutes ago when we were talking about the new book, Lewis Sacker is of course known for lots of kids' books. We've covered a few of them on the show in addition to the original Wayside School book. We've talked about Holes, we've talked about There's a Girl in the Boys' Bathroom, which I happen to actually love in spite of my concerns about the title. It was a really great read even in 2020 or 2021 and he spent a lot of time in a classroom so he really does know like what kids find funny the 
sort of like recess monitor, the like groundskeeper of the school, Lewis, is based on Lewis Sacker, and he's kind of like the voice of reason to some extent. In all of the books in this series, he pops up again and again in these different episodes, these little stories about the students at Wayside School, and he's like observing their antics and responding to them and building relationships with them, and the kids just really seem to trust him. A couple of other fun facts about Lewis Sacker's writing career and what brought him to the point where he was writing these stories. One of the first stories that he ever wrote when he was in college was actually the inspiration for the Wayside School books. So there was in the first children's book that he ever wrote, there was a teacher character named Mrs. Gorf. He wrote that actually when he was in high school, not college. And she was evil. Like she was an evil teacher. I think if your name is Mrs. Gorf, that tracks. No offense to anybody out there whose last name is Gorf. I think a fictional teacher named Mrs. Gorf reads as villainous. And so after he wrote that story when he was in high school, he started playing around with other school stories um, and he wrote about the school that he called Hillside Elementary School, which he of course later renamed as Wayside School when he was finished college and he was working at a sweater warehouse during the day. Then he applied to law school and he had the manuscript for sideways stories from Wayside School accepted during the first week of classes while he was in law school. So <laughs> that kind of changed things a little bit, um, but he did spend time in a classroom and so he, I think, does know how to make kids laugh and he knows what they'll respond to and I think that like I agree with you I was like oh my gosh kids would find some of this stuff so funny and so weird and even little details like one of the chapters begins with this warning to kids like do not read this if you've just eaten like do not read this if you've been thinking about eating actually like do not eat this if you've ever eaten anything in your life or plan to ever eat anything again and I'm like this is brilliant because obviously What's a kid going to do? Read it. Like, what's the best way to get a kid to do anything? Tell them not to do that thing. Completely. And so in addition to just the writing being really effective and funny and perfectly geared toward children, I think that there were some formatting decisions made that are just like so smart. And, And every chapter was a little bit different in format. And there were like little fun tips and tricks. And in a few of them were like one of them's backwards. And there's little rhyme schemes like... It just, I can see how it keeps kids, even reluctant readers, moving really quickly through the book. Yeah, I agree. And I thought the little devices that mix things up were really clever. I didn't remember that. Um, so when I got to the chapter that was written backwards, like, I didn't, I, I still don't like, connect that to reading it the first time. I just didn't remember it, but I could see how kind of smart it was. And even again, as an adult where I could kind of piece it together really quickly, I was still even like reading more closely and like, following along to move it backwards. And so just some of those things. And at one point, somebody is standing upside down. And so the text on the page is upside down. And just some of those things are so kid focused. And like, I work with I work with college students now um, in my day job, I have a PhD in education. And just thinking about identity conscious programming and curriculum and writing and really having your audience and the learner and the reader in mind as you're writing. And that was so clear in this book. Oh, I sort of want to like nerd out on that a little bit. Like, is there anything else that you want to say about like audience consciousness? That's so cool. We've never had anybody talk about that on the podcast before. Is there anything like specific that you could point to in this book that made you think about your day job that way? Oh gosh. I don't know if it made me think about my day job directly other than thinking about like when I am writing something for my romance readers, I'm really trying to think about who might this reader be? Who is this character? 
Um, how can I make this authentic to their experiences? And that really links to when I'm working with my college students and I work with um, particularly students of color and students in some other marginalized identities, as I'm planning something for them, am I planning something from my perspective or based on like what they're bringing to the table? And so I don't write children's books. I think I'd be a horrible, horrible children's book author because I don't know if I can put myself in that headspace. But I think in all books that really speak to readers, I think that the author has intentionally or maybe unintentionally spent some time thinking about the perspective and the place of that reader and kind of where they they are. So I'm trying to think if there's some examples. I think um, TikTok is fascinating. I think book talk is fascinating on about a million levels and probably problematic on about a billion too. But like, I think it's a wonderful community of people, but I think it's so interesting to see the books that kind of go huge there um, are generally books about 22 year olds and often 22 year old women, but not exclusively, at least in romance. Um, and thinking about like who that audience is and who those books might speak to the most. And I think that can translate to the book you write or maybe how it sells, but it's also maybe how it's promoted or, you know, the way that kind of books come into public consciousness and things along those lines. And I don't think that is, is it's good. I don't think it's bad or even neutral. Um, but I think that is one example of thinking about like identity consciousness and how our identity maybe plays into what we read and what we love and what we promote. But as authors, thinking about what we put into the world and how we shape it to kind of fit those needs. Oh, that is so interesting. And thinking about this book, specifically, like I would imagine that even in 1989, when there was no TikTok or BookTok or social media <laughs> or even really like the internet in any sort of mainstream way, I feel as though this book was probably marketed so much toward teachers and school librarians. And, and listeners know that I spent a few years working in children's book publishing when I got out of college. And so I, I had the chance to work pretty closely with the marketing team and specifically with the school, with the school and library marketing team. And what that what those teams do, it's so fascinating because they really do target the books that are going to work best in those environments. And I feel like these Wayside School books probably worked so well because you have these short chapters. Almost all of the chapters feel pretty self-contained. I did notice that in this book, Wayside School is Falling Down, the stories felt a little bit more connected than they did in Sideways Stories from Wayside School. Um, so I think maybe it would be harder to read like just a snippet here and there to young kids. But I just think a book like this really lends itself to reading aloud to students. But then at the same time, I was thinking about the fact that like a lot of these stories paint not such a great picture of school and or of teachers. And so I wonder if that's like a complicated call for a teacher to make as to whether or not to read a book like this out loud to their students. I don't know. And um, I've never worked in the classroom and I certainly didn't in the in the 80s. But I do think like, I think all of our literature is a bit more aware. Yeah. Now, much of it anyway, is more maybe aware now than things were then. So as I was reading it, there were definitely a few chapters where I was like, Oh, this is kind of anti feminist, or this is kind of um, problematic for other reasons or like gender um, essentialist or um, yeah, negative toward teachers. But I think in whole, the in aggregate, I actually thought the book took a fairly positive view of at least the, the main teacher that we see and then the, the Lewis, I think, because um, those are most of the only teachers we see. So for me, as I was reading it, I did have those moments where I was like, oh, that's kind of not great. But in a way, I think he wrote it says that the teacher wasn't really core to the story either. Yeah. 
like it was much more about the teacher as player in these kids world of the classroom versus the teacher's perspective. Yeah. So, and I wonder, um, I would be curious what perspectives were of teachers like kind of back then and what they were used to. But I, I do think that that's interesting as we think about like the perspective of the book really is from the kids. I feel like it would take a certain kind of teacher to like know how to present this to students in a way that feels funny and light. And, and like you said, Denise, like you're sort of in on the joke, like it's aware of what it's doing. Like I said, I did not revisit that original Wayside School episode from 2020. I will link it in the show notes for those who want to check it out. But if I'm remembering correctly, the reason that I really bristled at that book was because I felt like it had such a negative perspective on school. And it made me sad thinking about little kids being exposed to these stories maybe before they went to kindergarten or first grade. And it just, I felt like this was a book that would maybe make them afraid because there were a lot of bullies and the teachers were mean and they were getting in trouble for everything. Like we're introduced in that first book to this discipline system that we see again in this in this installment where like you do something wrong for the first time and your name gets written on the chalkboard under the word discipline. And then you do something wrong a second time and you get a check mark next to your name. And the third time you get sent home uh, at noon on the kindergarten bus, which side note, I don't think is seen as punishment by most kids because it means you get to go home early and not be at school anymore. But in the first book, I felt like somebody was getting in trouble in every single chapter. And maybe it's because I was a child and to some degree still am an adult who's like allergic to getting into trouble and being called out publicly. And so it just made me, it made me really sad as a student who just like loved to learn and loved to be at school, like thinking about kids who would anticipate that this is what their school experience would be like. And I also like, as an adult, I don't do well with like bathroom humor or like body humor in general, which is probably like something that I need to get more comfortable with because I was listening to an episode of the We Can Do Hard Things podcast this week and apparently Glennon Doyle also doesn't do so well with like talk about bodies and bodily functions. And her sister gave her a really interesting talking to about how like that's actually a really misogynistic thing because women in particular are socialized to be ashamed of their bodies and the things that they just like do at a basic level. And so Glennon Doyle and I are working through that together. I'm sure she knows that <laughs> on the journey. So yeah, I know that that's like a weakness for me, but I was responding to that a lot too, I think in the first book where I was like, I get that kids might like some of this. I found it a little gross maybe. And also I just felt like it was kind of dark for kids. <laughs> it definitely is kind of dark. You know, it's interesting too. And I think about how schools change and adapt because like the discipline thing and write your name on the board and the check mark, I had that in my schools. Like, and I think I went to pretty good schools and I was also a good goody two shoes kid, like allergic to getting in trouble, very quiet. So that wasn't my experience, but that felt so authentic to me when I was in third grade and then looking back like on my own elementary experience. Yeah. And I think that's reflective of how schools have changed, particularly from even the seventies to the nineties, but I'm sure the nineties into the two thousands, like what we know more about child development and education and discipline and all of those things. So I think that might be part of it too. But yeah, like reading that, I knew from a parent and an education standpoint, I was like, oh, we don't do that anymore. But also I remember very clearly doing that in school. So that didn't necessarily feel like harsh because that was what was normal for me in my school system. Um, so I think that that's that perspective thing too, but it definitely does have some darker things to it. And for me, I, I'm trying to remember because my, we haven't read a ton of the older books to my son. He likes kind of newer stuff, but 
I feel like I remember reading a lot of darker things as a kid than what my son sees like in his books now. And so I don't know if that is like generational or just what people are writing or it could just be what we're picking up. But just thinking back on some of the books that I read, like even I mentioned uh, Matilda by Roald Dahl, who I think Roald Dahl is canceled for several hundred reasons, but I did love that book as a kid, like how incredibly dark that was or Charlie and the Chocolate Factory or any of those or even some of those, um, those books that are still kind of lauded now. So I wonder if that too has shifted over time. I don't know, but I do remember reading a lot of dark themes. And when I was rereading this, there were a few times where I was like, oh gee, are we playing with existential dread and like getting banished to an alternate universe? Yeah. And then I'm like, well, what is Stranger Things or any other, you know, all of these other programs that are on now? Yeah. And I'm certainly not an advocate for like shielding kids from heavy topics or from dark subject matter. I mean, I'm not a parent and I also understand that every individual parent or caretaker has the prerogative to like choose what they want to expose their kids to. And hopefully they feel inspired to expose their kids to lots of different things to see what interests them. I think maybe it was just like my own personal hang ups about loving school so much. And maybe I was like projecting a little bit of my own love for learning and and memory of school as like a very safe space for me. And so when I read that first book, I was like, oh wait, like this feels, and I guess I feel like school, luckily for us, for the most part in the US is such a universal experience for kids and it can so easily be a source of dread. And so I guess I just was like, of all of the things that we could expose in a dark way, like expose anything you want with like some dark humor, Lewis Sacker, like I don't care, but like kids have to go to school and it just, I don't know, like I said, it's probably more my own issue than anything else, but I was at least prepared for it going into this book. Like I knew when I opened Wayside School is Falling Down that I might feel some of those same feelings and I went into it more prepared. And I, I agree with you, like there are some pretty big topics being explored, existential dread, this notion of like, would you rather be free or safe? There's a moment where these kids are kind of in like, what feels a bit like a purgatory-esque place for, <laughs> for yeah. me for a minute. And there's just like a lot going on. So I wanted to dive into a couple of these stories. Like I said, it's a pretty episodic work overall. For the most part, these stories stand on their own. Denise, are there any in particular that you were especially drawn to or maybe that you thought were really problematic that you wanted to make sure we talk about today? I thought I thought the freedom one, uh, which the chapter is freedom is chapter seven, yeah, uh, where we do look at that idea. Would you rather be safe or free? And I actually thought that was kind of masterful because it is a heavy topic. And as I'm reading it, I'm thinking like, oh, you know, philosophers talk about this, and I studied this in college philosophy classes and, and through my PhD program and things like that. But the way it's written is really, I think, how kids look at those big questions because kids do look at those big questions of. And not even in a heavy way, but just, okay, well, what is this difference and what does that mean? And how do I make meaning of that for myself? And I thought with the bird and the way that the, the kid is very focused on it and then is completely on to something else felt so authentic to me. And so much like be, so much of this book felt like being in a conversation with my son. These kids, I think, are a little bit older than my son, but it felt so much like having this very deep, meaningful conversation with him. And then we talk about poop for a while and then yeah, um, on to and then it's Ninjago, which did not exist in this universe. But that one I thought was really interesting way to get into that. Not even heavy topic, but deeper topic, I think. Um, and the way that a kid might get into it. 
Yeah, I also thought that that chapter was really interesting. Listeners, excuse any page turning because I'm opening my own copy of the book and there were a couple of moments that I wanted to point out that were, yes, very masterful. Um, so we meet Myron, who's the star of this chapter. It's it's interesting because pretty much every chapter has like one or two central characters and sometimes the kids come back, but for the most part, there's like one kid per chapter. And Myron is the star of chapter seven, Freedom, and he's really into this bird that's outside, which reminded me of my 10th grade trigonometry teacher, I think. She was obsessed with this bird that would come like perch on the window of our classroom and it was an Oriole. And it was like, you could you could be in the middle of a test, you could be in the middle of any lesson, and the bird would fly and she'd be like, oh, the Oriole. And like, it would be like, stop everything. We have to go look at the Oriole outside the classroom. And I'm not like a big bird lover. No offense to bird lovers out there, but <laughs> there's a lot about the bird and Myron and Myron has named him Oddly. And Myron thinks to himself, Oddly probably thinks I live in a cage, he realized. Whenever he sees me, I'm sitting in the same desk. He probably thinks this desk is my cage. And then he goes on and thinks, I do live in a cage. I'm not allowed out. I have to stay in my cage until the bell rings. Then I have to go down the stairs. Then when it rings again, I have to go up the stairs. Then when it rings again, I have to go down the stairs. Then when it rings again, I have to go up the stairs. I'm never free which I think is so true to the way kids experience like so much of their lives. When you're a kid, you have so little control for the most part of what happens to you. And like, if you are a kid that's in this kind of rigid educational system and has parents that expect you to show up and do the school thing every day, like that's how you feel. You feel like you're trapped. And he does ultimately like get this offer from these mysterious men in the basement who like give him chance to sign a contract about whether he would prefer to be safe or free. It almost reminded me of The Little Mermaid when when Ariel like agrees that she's gonna give up her yeah. voice to like go be be free and, and walk on land, which is a whole other brand problematic. But I starred with like three different asterisks where this mysterious man says, well, do you want to be free or do you want to be safe? And Myron says, huh? And the man says, you can't have it both ways. And another one says, do you want to be safe? Do you want to sit in the same chair every day and go up and down the stairs every time the bell rings? And they kind of go on and talk about like, if you choose to be safe, this is what that's going to look like. And wouldn't you rather be free even if it's dangerous? And I, as I was reading this, I was like, I don't know. Like, I don't (laughs) even know. Like, do I want to be safe or do I want to be free? Am I either? Like, I don't think so. I just am so confused. This was like written to Gen Z, like people in their 20s, like... Here's the chapter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it, it really was, uh, it was deep. I agree with you on that one, Denise. Um, I'm trying to think of some other ones that, that stuck out to me. The Mush chapter, which is chapter nine. Yes. And that is with this, um, it takes place in the lunchroom and you see um, the lunch monitor, I forget. I think it's Mrs. Mush. Yeah. I remember thinking as I was reading it, this is very, very funny. Um, also, this would never be published in 20. 20- 20 uh, or 2022 because it's also kind of making light of this guy kissing people without their permission Mm. which again i don't was always a problem was not in our public consciousness of kids doing that right in the 80s like that wasn't we thought it was cute and all of these other things that we know are troublesome now but when this was written i kind of know the context that was written in but in retrospect i remember reading it and thinking like oh no that wouldn't stand up to the test of time but the way it was written and crafted and the way that the sentences were even structured i remember just thinking this is very funny like there's a lot of little micro tension in there and the language that's used 
And for so much of this book, I was like, I really need to read chunks of this to my son because he would just get such a kick out of the way that the kids interact and what's important to them felt so real where you're like, no, you're learning. Like there's so much important thing that you're learning. But what was really important to the kids was like, no, like who am I going to sit by at lunch? And what am I going to do at recess? And what am I going to have since I can't have my peanut butter and jelly sandwich that stood out as, you know, the most important things. And that chapter I thought was a lot of fun minus the sexual harassment. Yeah. Minus the lack of consent. I loved the rhythm of this chapter because there's this one scene um, when our main character, he's like, this is the 18th day in a row that the special was Mushroom Surprise. It was called Mushroom Surprise because it would have been a surprise if anybody had ever ordered it. No one ever did except Lewis, of course. That's why they had it for 18 days. There was always plenty left over. Milk, said Terrence. Milk, said Sherry. Milk, said Calvin. Milk, please, said BB. Like, I just love the rhythm of it. Like, you uh-huh. can hear it in your head, even if you're just reading it silently. It would be so fun to read out loud. I think so, too. And I, I'm sure a teacher read this to us. I think it was Mr. Mikulski in third grade. But Shout out. Um, <laughs> shout out, Mr. Mikulski, if you are still teaching or listening to the podcast. But those, I think, were the ones that stood out most to me. And there were a lot of ones that were kind of fun. And I liked the mix of kind of lesson, sort of lesson chapters with just fun, silly chapters. And I thought the one where Calvin, chapter 14, Calvin's big decision, Calvin gets a tattoo. Yeah. As a child, my dad said I could get a tattoo after work. And you're like, you're seven, which is ridiculous. But it was such a fun discussion of like big decision making. Yeah. Again, like a chapter that I think could speak to a lot of us as adults. Calvin goes through this whole rigmarole of how other people can't really decide what decision to make for himself and how it's something that's permanent and what that means and what it means to pick something that you truly love. And he ends up getting a potato, um, which is not, you know, the choice most of us would make. But I think from the first book, he really loved potatoes. I don't remember. But I thought there, there was a really good mix of like life lessons mixed in with just fun, silly, ridiculousness. There were a few recurring characters or like themes that came up again and again that I wanted to talk about. The first is Benjamin Nushmut, who is this new student at the school. I think we meet him in chapter two or three and the teacher confuses his name. Like she must've gotten bad intel. And so she starts calling him Mark Miller. And Benjamin Nushmut is very, very ashamed of his name. And so he really likes the fact that people are calling him Mark Miller. And he seems that he's, he's like, oh, people seem to like really like this Mark Miller guy. I'm getting so much attention. This is awesome. And there are, I think, three chapters throughout this book where he's faced with the option to like maybe tell the truth about his real name. And it keeps getting diverted. There's like a situation with the substitute teacher where he tries to come clean. And then all of the (laughs) other classmates think that he's just pranking her with his name, which is really sad because they think that his real name is fake and a joke. And he's trying like so hard to figure out like how to be honest while also not giving up any of that social capital that he's gained, which I thought also like speaks to me as an adult in a way, because it's like that line between telling the truth and like also maybe holding some things back like if it's not hurting anybody does it really matter if people think my name is Mark Miller like I'm still being myself I'm not really lying I'm just kind of going along with what they thought and like how long do I keep this up before it becomes dangerous or like hurtful to people like these are questions that I think grown-ups are faced with often when they're trying to decide how 
transparent to be about things in their lives. I loved that. And I would say that was really the only true kind of arc in the yeah. in the book. And we saw a recurring character kind of grow and change. And I had kind of remembered that. And so that also tied into the kind of existential paranormal chapter, um, which I think was a fun just interlude. Yeah. But the way that this student kind of recreates himself and then figures out how to still be his genuine self is textbook human development. Like, again, that's what my degree is in. I study that and so I'm reading it. And like, as you see that child go through that, you can mirror that through a lot of developmental stages, you know, into adulthood, where like you said, we navigate our outward presenting person and our inward presenting. And then when we're in a new space, you know, do we decide to recreate ourselves or kind of how is our view shaped by how other people view us? And so, you know, I loved that arc. And I love that in the end, he finally said, this is my name. And the teacher was like, okay. And then it was, it was kind of a non-issue and he could kind of synthesize these pieces of his identity. And again, they tied it into kind of that magical, invisible 19th floor in that too. But I, yeah, I really enjoyed that. Yeah. It's sort of like an, it's like an exercise in personal branding <laughs> to a degree. And also like, like you said, the teacher is like, okay, like nobody cares, which is a lesson that I think we're all still trying to learn as adults. Well, I won't say all because maybe some people have figured it out, but like the things that you are worried about, about yourself, like nobody cares. Nobody, everybody is minding their own business. Nobody is judging your name. People for the most part just want you to show up and be yourself and put your best foot forward. And nobody is really that worried about the fact that you have a weird name. It's not all about you. It's not all about me, Denise. I'm still working really hard to learn about that because I'm a people <laughs> pleaser and I just assume that if I do something wrong, everybody is stopping their lives and thinking about it, but like, it's not. And I'm learning that even at 31, almost 32 years old. Yeah, and you know, and that's the kids lesson in general. I also thought it was interesting and this, they don't really say, but I would guess all the kids in this are white. Um, just the way they're kind of illustrated and things like that, which again, the 80s is not uncommon, but what I thought about too, as I was reading through that is kids who are in school or really in people who are in any space who have a name that people around them may find hard to pronounce, or it's based in a different country, or there may be a different ethnicity than the folks around them. How often their name, like the core of who they are has to be changed to fit into society. And my my discipline in education, I study race, I study racism, I study marginalized identities. And so we do training like with faculty and staff on that all the time. Like don't just shorten a student's name to make it easier for you. Like make sure you get it right because our name is so core to who we are. And I have a number of students I'll work with maybe from, from other countries even who are like, well, this is my name, but just call me Ben or just call me, um, you know, this shortened version that isn't really my name. And one of the most moving moments I ever had as an educator was working with a college junior or senior at the time. He's since graduated, but we were in a class where we were talking about race and racism in higher education and studying um, kind of the history of race in universities. And part of that, I had the students write a, a, I called it a lyrical expression, a spoken word poem about their own experiences with race. And the poem that he wrote was called, They Call Me Derek. And that's how I had been introduced to him. He said, "This is, I'm call me Derek, this is my name. But throughout the poem and actually throughout that class, he's like, actually call me this, this is my name. Hmm. And so that I thought was so powerful. And he wrote the poem and it was gorgeous and he was able to read it um, at an event that we had, but it made me think of this name too. So like on that deeper level, yeah. And I'm guessing not in a way that Lewis Sacker necessarily wrote that to, but that that speaks to how education can support or 
or affirm or not affirm a lot of our students. And that is K through medical school and beyond because um, that happens for a lot of folks. Yeah. See, I did not even know that you had these specialties when you decided to choose this book and you bring such an interesting perspective. So thank you for doing that. I will say that I have a newer edition of the book and I'll show it to you on camera. Denise, there is a child of color on Oh, okay. On the cover. I believe that's Myron. Um, so I'll hang up mine, yeah. which is the original. Yeah, they're all white. <laughs> yeah. So there are illustrations at the beginning of every chapter. Again, listeners, I apologize uh, for any page turning. But yes, Myron looks to be illustrated as a child of color, as does Damon. Um, and I'm trying to see if I can find any others. So it feels like maybe they got the memo a little bit, although it would have been nice to see some other references to non-white, non-cis identities. Um, oh, yeah. yeah because really nice. in here, the only indication you get is kind of the illustrations. Right. There isn't a ton. Yeah. Which I like, because as I, and I like this as an adult too, like I don't need a lot of description of my characters. I like to be able to put myself in the story and put who I want to picture in a story. And so if, if without the illustrations, um, I do like that about this book. And I kind of remember liking that when I was a kid too. Yeah, because I, I think without the illustrations, and I guess now with illustrations that suggest a base level of diversity in the classroom, as a reader, you can sort of imagine the cast of characters based on your own classroom and what your classroom looks like. And you can sort of like imagine yourself as one of the characters, no matter what your background is. So yeah, I think that's a really good point. Like this does leave space for almost any student really to identify with the kids in the book. It would just be helpful if, like I love the illustrations, but maybe we don't need them because maybe that would make it an even more universal experience. I want to talk briefly about that funky, supernatural, paranormal chapter <laughs> that does involve Mark Miller slash Benjamin Nushma because it is so weird and kind of comes out of nowhere. It stars Allison, who I, of course, have to root for as an Allison myself. And she wanders into this floor. I think it's the 19th floor, which she didn't think there was a 19th floor in Wayside School. It's one of the quirks of this building. But it turns out there is a classroom on this floor. She shows up there because she's been, like, knocked down the stairs. And like I mentioned before, these characters are in, in kind of like a purgatory. And she discovers that it's this weird kind of collection of people of different ages. There's a woman who's like middle-aged and a much younger boy who we think is potentially the not real, but maybe now not fake younger brother of a <laughs> character who was the star of an earlier chapter. It's very funky. And the teacher, Miss Zarbs, has this like very specific approach where she just makes them memorize things all day because they're going to be here forever. So there's no rush. Um, and I pulled out this one line that reads, that's her plan. Allison suddenly realized she shivered as it all came together for her. Miss Zarves assigns us lots of busy work so we don't have time to think. She makes us memorize stupid things so that we don't think about the important things. And then she gives us good grades to keep us happy. So we, of course, have like this weird paranormal thing going on where like Mark Miller is there, like the real Mark Miller, whoever that is, because we know that Benjamin Nushmud is going by Mark Miller in the classroom. Sorry if this is confusing. It's confusing on the page as well. <laughs> But I wanted to pull out those lines because I'm like, I feel like Lewis Sacker is making a real statement maybe about the education system. And maybe this is the kind of approach to education that he's seen in his own experience where like teachers and look, I want to, I want to state, I think teachers are superheroes 
I thought that before I started the podcast. I think that even more now that I have fantastic relationships with so many teachers who listen to the show. I've done some teaching myself and it is it is the hardest job. But it's clear to me that maybe Lewis Sacker was exposed to some teachers that had an approach that did not feel particularly enriching to him. And maybe they did just assign busy work and were acting more as babysitters and then just doled out A's to keep everybody happy. It, it was a pretty clear statement to me. Oh, I think so too. And I also really loved in that chapter, so the way that Allison escapes yeah. is that she starts acting up the way that some of the kids in her class had in previous chapters. And so getting in trouble in a way that she wouldn't have. And I thought that that was very cool to see as an arc too, because in some ways it validates like, and again, this spoke a lot to how my school looked in not the 30 stories and not the invisible paranormal floor, but with the way that like discipline and how teaching was done then, like that felt very consistent with what I lived through. But I always saw as the good kid, like, oh my gosh, there is nothing good that these quote bad kids are doing. Like they're acting up, they're getting in trouble, they're acting out. Like that is, you know, black and white, like that's bad. But she sees like, oh, I can harness this and there is kind of power in the different ways that people act, even if it isn't valued in school systems. And I, I don't know if Lewis Sacker meant to make that comparison at that level, but I think that's real, especially when we look at how K-12 education has traditionally been structured. And again, especially as I think through like going to school in the 80s, 90s, like this was very true. And I think that's evolved quite a bit over time, but K-12 was a bastion for me. I would sit quietly. I would raise my hand. I would follow the rules. That social conditioning hit me very well as a child. I've abandoned it as adult, but as a child, I was good with that. My brother, my younger brother, two years younger than me, had the same teachers, same schools. And again, I think we went to pretty progressive, pretty good schools. Had a very different experience. He was not going to be the one to sit still and be quiet and raise his hand. He was going to talk and be active. And we know so much about child development that, of course, he was. But I think that's a really great comment, too, about kind of who kids are in school and what is valued and what is not. In addition to those teachers who are all about kind of memorization, that quote, like, pay attention, what they tell you to forget or tell you to ignore, those sorts of things. Um, so there are so many pieces in that in addition to the silliness of being in this alternate universe. And so the 19th floor in this book series doesn't exist. And Mrs. Zarves is the teacher and she doesn't exist. This gets repeated all the time. And something I actually just noticed that I didn't notice while I was reading is there's three chapter 19s. Yeah. So every uh, chapter that Allison is on that floor is titled chapter 19. And I just didn't pay attention to that while I was reading. But I was like, that is just sort of like brilliant and then the next chapter is 20 21 and 22 all yep. together um so there's some kind of fun just like structural pieces there too yeah and i feel like lewis sacker is showing that you can have fun with books in this way like you can play with language you can play with structure it doesn't have to be boring or typical one other quick note that i wanted to make about this like school system situation before we start to wind down this conversation denise is about the teacher who puts herself on the discipline board. Uh, listeners know that I love, I love whether it's a middle grade book or a YA book or a book written for even younger readers, when we get to see adults like take accountability for their actions, apologize to kids, I think it's so refreshing. And we see that in this book. She actually realizes that she's not being nice to the students and she puts her own name on the discipline board. And I'm here for that. Like. For everything that I said on the first Wayside School episode about how awful I thought this 
book might feel to kids who are already nervous about going to school in that small moment I was like okay like I this is it's a redemptive moment for me because we're seeing how these adults at the school want to show kids through their actions how to be accountable and it's not just punitive it's like no this is something that we all need to abide by and I too can mess up yeah, I did like seeing that. And that chapter was kind of interesting where she, I think it's, she's the main teacher or something yeah. like that. Like, and that really is the only chapter that's truly from the, the teacher's point of view, which yeah. is interesting too, that takes it kind of out of the kid's point of view. Something as we're kind of um, weighing down on talking about some of those pieces, that uh, the theme I really got as I was reading through it is... I thought the kids pointed out the things they didn't like about school pretty honestly. Like, yeah. I, we hate busy work. We don't like worksheets. I don't want to do math today. Like, again, going back to my own memories or the college students I currently work with yesterday, that felt super accurate and super <laughs> connected. But at the same time, I think there was always still joy and excitement about being at school, which is, I think, the hallmark of what teachers do and what administrators do to make schools good learning environments is kids are ultimately excited to be there, even if they are not excited to do the state mandated worksheets, obviously, or, you know, to do some of the different pieces that aren't fun at school, because I think all of us have that at work. We have that in our universities, we have that in our, some, you know, clubs, social organizations sometimes too. But that I did think that the overall emotion for the kids was they're excited to be here. Like, this is where their friends are. This is where they are valued. This is where they are safe, even when they're doing these things that are definitely not safe. And I loved that about the way this school was crafted, even though it brought out some of those negative things. I definitely thought like the, the overall balance of that was definitely here. And I haven't read the first one in even longer than the second one. So I can't comment there directly, but I did like how authentic that felt. And again, not just for third graders, but I work with college students that was accurate of them yesterday. And so I think that's in some ways some universal pieces and, and that idea of for adults, like where we choose to work and that idea of where you work matters and who you work with matters in terms of the things you like about your job and not, but then also what the environment is and, and how you feel kind of moving in and out of that space. Yeah, I love that. And and as you were sharing that, I guess I also have to acknowledge that like not every kid had the same experience with school that I did and not every kid loved being there. And so a book like this, again, allows space for all kids to have this like mandatory experience with school in a way that makes sense for them. So I think that, that is a really important thing to to acknowledge. On the whole, Denise, how does this experience coming back to Wayside School is Falling Down compare to your memories of this book? Does it hold up? Did it let you down? No, I think it held up. I mean, I expect when I go back and read things from 30 years ago, there's going to be a few like red flags, um, which I hope in 30 years and I read things from now, there'll be a few red flags. But uh, no, it held up. And I, I was back in that space of having fun with a book and having fun like seeing my own experience on a page, even in like a silly way. Because even I remember we read all the time and I've always loved to read. Those books didn't feel like they were about me. You know, they were, I was obsessed with Babysitter's Club. Like I didn't feel like I was on the page. I just enjoyed reading the story and you know, things like, I think we read like A Wrinkle in Time at the same time as this. Some other things like that never felt like I was in the story. And this felt very, when I was a kid, um, uh, authentic, accessible to my own experience. And I just remember thinking that when I was a kid, I thought that was really cool. And as I was reading it again now, I, I could go back into that headspace. And so I think this definitely held up. I would be interested to read the 2020 version 
and see like all the things that have changed because I'm sure a number of things have changed in that story, not the version, the new one. But no, it definitely held up for me and like the whimsy and the silliness of it all really connected. And I really appreciated the humor of it as an adult author. Great. Well, I'm so glad that this gave you an excuse to come back to a childhood favorite. Other than Wayside School is Falling Down, what have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners? Oh, sure. Okay, this is going to take a jump because most of them are adult romance. But the first one is actually a kid's book. I don't know if it would just be children's or middle grade, but it's the Inspector Flytrap books or DJ Funky Foot uh, is the other one. And my son loves those books and we read them every night. And he's just, he's an early reader. He's just learning how to read. So he'll kind of read words here and there. But it is so warming to me that when we finish the chapter, he's like, can we read just one more chapter? Can we read just one more chapter? And it's kind of like when he asks, can we buy just one more book? I'm a sucker for that. I'm always going to say yes. But those have been actually a lot of fun. And I was out at the LA Times um, Festival of Books a couple of months ago, and they were selling the DJ Funky Foot books. And I bought all the ones I could find because he just loves that author so much. And so I definitely recommend those for your young, young readers or young at heart readers. But switching gears, there is a book series that my friend introduced to me as, okay, I love this book series. I devoured it. And it's the weirdest recommendation I'm ever going to give you. Like, I don't feel like I should have devoured it. And I was like, well, I'm intrigued. And the book series, I think is called, it's about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The four horsemen is the, is the series. There's four books and each book is a different horseman of the apocalypse there are about 7 billion content warnings for all of these books because it starts with pestilence and you're in the middle of a plague. Felt very right. much like COVID. Right. And all of then the next one is war and then famine and then death. And so the books are incredibly dark and it's dark subject matter. But also the love story within them is so beautifully written and the prose is gorgeous. They're very violent, which I don't normally read a lot of violence in books. And they're kind of a nice mix of like fantasy paranormal, but it's also contemporary. So it's almost like a, um, oh, I'm blanking on the word, like an apocalyptic, Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, that fits, setting. And I just love those books. I devoured all of them. I didn't love the fourth one as much as the other three, but I listened to them on audiobook, and I think I would just be driving around the block like extra times when I got home so I could finish a chapter. I just uh, was sucked into those books completely. Amazing. Um, on the lighter end of the spectrum, um, this book is coming out soon. It's, it will probably be out a little bit after this airs, um, but it's Marlo Banks redesigned by Jacqueline Ferkins. Is a Hollywood romance. It's very um, kind of light and fun. And I got so sucked into the magic of Hollywood and the main character, the heroine is a costume designer. And then the love interest is a hero on like a, um, I don't know, something like a Riverdale type show. And they just have this sort of beautiful love story and it's, it has some great, I think, insight into figuring things out in your 20s and like in your career. But then it's also just kind of light and fun and a little sexy and very romantic. And I had a ton of fun with that one. Um, that one will be out soon. And then um, The Wedding Crasher by Mia Sosa charmed me to my toes. I love Mia's writing. She just is a beautiful writer. That one was so sexy and so fun and so funny. And her characters are just so authentic and real. Um, th that has been another one. That I think I read it on a plane and I got flight delays. So I read the entire thing on a plane. Um, but those have been a lot of fun lately. Amazing. Well, those are great recommendations and I will include them all in the show notes for this episode. 
I will also, Denise, include links to your work. And as this episode drops, you have a new book publishing in just a couple of weeks on September 6th called Do You Take This Man? Tell us everything. Sure. So Do You Take This Man centers RJ Brooks, who is a divorce attorney who is tough as nails, who does not believe in romantic love, and who also happens to officiate weddings on the side. Much like myself, she got ordained online to perform a wedding for a friend and then happens to witness a couple getting engaged in the park, is kind of swept away by their love story and officiates this wedding for them on the fly. And then it goes viral. And so she finds herself in this place of being a tough as nails divorce attorney who does not believe in love, who is also a hotly sought after wedding officiant. And for romance reasons, she actually kind of enjoys it and she continues to do it kind of through the the summer. At the same time, she runs into uh, a wedding planner, a wedding planning assistant who used to work for the NFL, whose life kind of fell apart and who has abandoned his nice guy persona. Um, So he's here planning weddings with a dude bro facade on and they hate each other. Uh, In their first interaction, he tells her, you should smile more. And even though he knows that's the worst thing he could say, he's really committed to abandoning the nice guy thing. He redeems himself. Um, But they really hate each other. And that hate kind of turns to a lot of bantering and bickering as they work together. It turns into an enemies with benefits situation. And then of course, love grows through that. I dedicated this book to the ones who think they're hard to love uh, because at a core, both characters really do believe that they are hard to love, that it is hard for somebody else to really get them and to love them. And then of course they find that in each other. So I really had a lot of fun with this book. This was the book I wrote at the height of the pandemic. So the soundtrack to it, when I get asked about that was the Paw Patrol soundtrack because my son was 15 feet away from me, but there's a lot of steam. There's a lot of heat. I think there's eight or nine open door um, scenes, but there's also a lot of banter. is I think more aligned to like a classic rom-com than I think my other books are but it was just a lot of fun to write these two characters who are figuring out how to love each other and how to love themselves while you know getting it on quite a bit in aquariums and supply closets plus I love weddings and so I got to write like snippets of a ton of different weddings that they're at through it so that will be out September 6th um, in the U.S. and then the U.K. and Commonwealth and I'm really excited for it to be out there I love this book what a great premise i'm so excited for this book to be out there and to grab a copy myself listeners you got to read it like you got to get a copy buy it from your independent bookstore i will make sure that you have a link to that book as well as denise's other work congratulations denise i'm thrilled for you it has been so fun chatting with you about this wild world of wayside school (laughs) thank you so much it was so wild to read this book again um and get back in that world so i appreciate the opportunity bye thank you SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.